I think I've used this illustration before, but I'm going to use this again. Pastors, we do that. I love, my favorite kind of movie is historical drama. You know, I'm really mad I didn't get to see Napoleon in theaters because these kids are really cramping my style. Even though I heard Napoleon was terrible uh, and everything was out of order in his life and the history people are not happy about this movie. Um, there's actually a great YouTube channel, though. I haven't seen his one on Napoleon yet. I'm sure he'll do one, and he'll be very mad. But you guys should go to this YouTube channel. I'm not one for plugging YouTube channels during sermons, but here you go. It's called History Buffs. It is fantastic. It's this dorky guy, and what he does is he watches history movies, and then he complains about the history. Like, even just little stuff, like Braveheart. You remember Braveheart? It opens up, and it says, the year is blah, blah, blah. I forget what year it says, actually. And it's just like the wrong year. There was no reason to, they're off by like 10 years or something for no reason. Somebody in the 90s just didn't get out the Encyclopedia Britannica and look up, you know, what year it was. Um, but actually, not just the details like that. One of my biggest pet peeves with history movies is when they take a modern very new way of thinking, and then they take those ideas and they superimpose them onto historical stuff, historical characters and people that those ideas would have been completely foreign to them. So there's a few examples of this. The worst one is Braveheart. And Braveheart's whole thing is like American independence and freedom put into, when was Braveheart? Like the 1300s or something like that? 1400s? I don't remember. It was like a way, 1200s into feudal England and Scotland. And the true story is that the Scottish people weren't about freedom and democracy and everything. They just wanted my king to be on the throne. <laughs> you know, but even the main line that everybody remembers from that movie is what? They'll never take our freedom. But I mean, it's just like, I want to be that guy's slave, not that guy's slave, was kind of the idea, right? So, I mean, that's kind of one of the worst ones, but there's a bunch. Like, um, Alexander, do you remember that movie? You guys, it was not good. So, Colin uh, Farrell, yeah, Colin Farrell was supposed to be in that movie, Troy. I don't remember the exact details, and he got kicked off or something, and so they made him another historical movie, and they whipped it together real fast. But that whole movie takes ideas from the 60s and the sexual revolution and puts them into a historical movie from 300 and something BC. Didn't make any sense. Um, another one that gets a lot of uh, flack is, um, you remember uh, Elizabeth? There were two of those movies um, uh, with was it Kate Blanchett back in the 90s. Um, so that movie took a bunch of uh, like, you know, late 20th century feminist ideas and they made a movie about Queen Elizabeth, who was in the 1600s. So I really don't like, you know, you're watching these movies and they're trying to teach you something about modern ideals using ancient or very old characters. It doesn't make any sense. And then you watch History Buffs and this guy rips these movies to shreds and I love it. What these producers are doing, they're trying to sell tickets they don't care about history. And they're forgetting that what people for most of history don't think the way that we think now. It's just how, it, and even people in other parts of the world don't think the way that we think now. And what these movies do to history, Christians, we do backwards. Okay, we do this the other way around. Now, you guys know about apologetics. You know that phrase? It means defending the faith, coming up with arguments for the faith. Like how on Wednesday night we just read that book, Why There Is No God. And we talked about some of the arguments and that sort of stuff. Um, but the thing is, apologetics, or a hundred years ago, People thought differently than we think now. And a lot of the arguments 
that are in apologetics books are answering questions that people had 100 years ago, and they're questions people don't have today. So if you read a lot of apologetics books, there's huge parts about the virgin birth, and there's huge sections about miracles. And most people today, that's not the one thing that they get hung up with Christianity. Oh, they believe in miracles. A hundred years ago, that was the thing. It was the virgin birth, and it was different kinds of miracles. And so um, in, in movies, they take these, like I'm saying, they take these modern ideas and ignore the history. In apologetics, we, we do it the other way around. And we assume that we're still thinking like those guys back then, you know? And we don't understand that the way that people think have changed. In our culture, in the West, the big thing people struggle with are things like, one of the big things is the Christian claim of exclusivity. How could you possibly say that your God is the only one? And then you go, huh, I've heard a lot of people say that. And you pick up an apologetics book and nobody talks about it. Everybody's talking. I mean, and not that any of the info in those books is wrong, or there's something wrong. You know, I mean, it's good. We want to. We believe in miracles. We believe in the virgin birth. We believe that the Bible was preserved over thousands of years, right? But the problem is, and inerrancy and inspiration and all that stuff. That's just not the question that our friends are asking. Our friends are asking this question: Aren't you a bigot if you say that yours is the only religion? How dare? Like, how arrogant are you to think that you have the only way to God? Here's the plan today. So I just wanted to set up. That's going to be our theme at the end. I want to show you how we'll get there. Um, we're going to read the text, and then we're going to answer that question. How do, what do we say to that? Like, what's our response to that? Um, so this, the reason we're doing this today is because this comes up in our text. Peter says, Jesus is the only way. So we'll read it. Let's see. Here we go. Verse 1. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. So let me do a quick recap here. Peter and John are going to the temple to pray at the beginning of Acts chapter 3. They see a guy, he's there, and he can't walk. And so Peter says, hey, dude, look at me. And the beggar guy says, oh, cool, I'm going to get some money. Peter goes, I don't have any money. But what I do have, I give you. Get out in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And then Peter pulls a guy up, and he starts bouncing around and praising God. Everybody in the temple had known this guy for a long time. And we'll read at the end of the chapter today, at the end of the text today, he was over 40. He had been there for a long time. So these people start seeing this guy, so a big crowd gathers. And remember, this is before um, Twitter and everything, a couple years before Twitter. And uh, so this was all just kind of organic. People see a crowd gathering in the temple, and they're like, what's the crowd about? Let's go check it out. You know, Nobody knew what was going on. And Peter realized, oh, I have this opportunity. These guys want to know what happened. So he gets up, and he gives this beautiful sermon. And he talks about Jesus as the Savior, and he's the one from the Old Testament, and he quotes a song. He does all this stuff, right? And uh, right in the middle, at the end of his sermon, is this verse, as they were speaking to the people. So Peter's in the middle of his sermon, and we talked about that. His sermon doesn't really end on a good note. It's just sort of right in the middle of a sentence, you know, it just sort of ends. And this is why, because as they were speaking to the people... These guys came, and what it says is, oh, first let's look at the guys, the priests and the captains of the, the captain of the temple and the Sadducees. So priests, um, like in our uh, churches, I'm the pastor, I do this all year round. In the ancient first century Judaism, right, back then, there were a lot of people that were of the, that were priests from the tribe of Levi and from descendants of Aaron, the whole thing, right? Um, but there were so many of them, they couldn't be full-time. And so what they did was they worked in shifts for a few weeks at a time. 
And so these were the guys, they were just at the temple doing temple stuff. Like one guy's job was to clean the walls. Another guy was to vacuum the carpet. And then one was like the sound guy. And then one you know, slit the lamb's throats, you know, and I don't know how they chose which job gets to who, you know, goes to who one lights the lamp stands. You know, there's a bunch of these guys around. The second guy there is the captain. He's like, you know, we have the high priest. He's the guy who's in charge. The captain of the temple, from what I read, it's kind of a weird thing. We think of this and we immediately think like security. But what I read was this is more like the vice high priest. He's the assistant high priest. He's in charge of, he's the guy, he's the guy who actually runs the place. The high priest is just the big figurehead who doesn't do anything. This is the guy who's in charge of the temple. So he's in charge of the priests. He's in charge of security. And he's in charge of making sure that no heretics show up and preach. And then the third group is the Sadducees. Now, in, the, in first century Judaism, there were a few different sort of political parties, you could call them, but religious, political, it was all mushed together. The Sadducees were the smallest group, but they, had, they were in power. They had the most power, even though they were the smallest group. And they didn't believe in stuff like the resurrection. They didn't believe in the other books of the Old Testament besides the Torah. So anyway, so these are the guys, and it says that they came upon them. Now, in, in Greek, this doesn't mean they moseyed on over. And they said, excuse me, sir, would you please come with me into the back? Okay, and this, and we'll read in a sec, in the verb for, in, in verse 3 there, they arrested them. Uh, it means they violently jumped them. Now, if you've ever been violently jumped, you guys, it's no fun. I've been there a handful of times. Okay, so these guys, never while I was preaching, though. But anyway, <laughs> not yet, anyway. Um, so here they are. They're, they jumped these guys. Why did they do it? Verse 2, greatly annoyed, that's why they did it, because they're greatly annoyed. We need to remember that this whole first part of the book of Acts is framed as a battle between two temples, right? Two competing temples. There's the, the temple in first century Judaism that has all the power and the history behind it. And then there's this new upstart group of people who say, we're the, we're the, we're, we're the new temple, we're where the presence of God lives. And so what we're going to see is a whole bunch of conflict between these two temples. This right here, when they arrest these apostles, these two guys, Peter and John, this is round one of a handful of rounds that's going to go throughout the book of Acts, okay? So they're greatly annoyed. And this is also, if you think about it, this is the first persecution that the church has faced at all. So far, up to this point, up to chapter four, it's been smooth sailing. Because what's happened? They've preached and been filled with the Spirit in Acts chapter 2. They picked a new apostle. They did a bunch of stuff, but so far it's been pretty easy. Here now is where things start to get hard. So it says, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming Jesus in the resurrection of the dead. So in Peter's sermon, he specifically said that Jesus is the one that you guys all killed, but God raised him from the dead. And that idea of resurrection, so this bothered the Sadducees especially, Sorry, wait. What is that noise? What is it? Oh, <laughs> okay. Yeah, I was like, what? Is there like a, I thought it was like a moth up here, something like a bird flying behind me. Go ahead. It's fine. Um, I lost my train of thought. What was I saying? Something about, uh... oh yeah. So they're annoyed for two reasons. One is because they don't believe in resurrection at all. Two, because they specifically don't want to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. Because if Jesus was raised in the middle of history, that creates a massive uh, problem for them. All right, verse 3. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. 
So they take him, they arrest him, violently drag him off to some kind of holding cell or some kind of jail cell. And as I was thinking about this, I realized something. I don't know this for sure. We'll, we'll find out when we're dead. We can ask Jesus when we're dead. But how many holding cells do you think the Sadducees had at the temple? I'm guessing they didn't have a massive, you know, like, um, like a massive jail in the bottom of the temple or whatever. And if you think about it, Peter and John, I'm 95% sure that Peter and John get dragged to the same place that Jesus sat while he waited to go to Pilate's house. I'm betting. And um, here's the other thing. If you read the end of the book of John, and we're going to read this in a few weeks. I'm going to read the whole passage, but I'll just tell you about it now. When you read the end of the book of John, there's this really weird little passage where Peter and Jesus are hanging out. And Jesus, this is the paraphrase, he goes, someday they're going to crucify you, Peter. Now, if Jesus tells you someday you're going to be crucified, the first day that you get arrested and then they drag you to the same holding cell where they held Jesus right before his crucifixion, you got to imagine Peter is freaking out. This is a very stressful day, right? And so, but did it, so with all that, did it stop the church from growing? Did persecution stamp out the light? Luke gives us this little editorial note in the middle of the story. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So Luke purposely uh, slips this verse in right here to say this specifically. As soon as the persecution started, the church grew. Those two things went hand in hand. Jesus used the persecution and the miracles and all the stuff that was happening to grow the church. And you say, well, they didn't grow that much, right? Only 5,000. They were just at, what, three or 4,000. But think about what it actually says. 5,000 what? Men. That was a way in the ancient world to say households. 5,000 families. You know what's my least favorite thing about church planting is when somebody asks me how many tithing units we have. And you guys, it's happened a few times, right? So if this was the... This is how many tithing units are... Oh, you guys, I can't even say it out loud. Uh, are, <laughs> I can't even do it. But this is families. And if you think there's three, four, five, I don't know how many people to a family, this is 20, 25,000 people is what most scholars think. So they've gone from three or 4,000 now to 20 plus thousand people. Now, let's find out what happens at the trial. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. So this is a way for Luke to introduce what's called the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin. We read about these guys in Luke, so I'm not going to get into it a ton, but these, this was the ruling body of the Jewish people. It's kind of like their ancient version of the president, Congress, the Supreme Court, and the Pope all in one. This is ultimate civil and religious authority. They controlled like the little couple of soldiers that they had in Israel, right? These guys had a lot of power. Now look at the list here. There were scribes, which were like the religious lawyers. There was Annas and Caiaphas and John. So this guy Annas was the honorary high priest. So he was the high priest, I wrote this down, from 6 to 15 AD. And the Romans didn't like him, so they kicked him out. But the Jewish people said, you can't kick out our high priest. We choose the high priest. So there's a big fight. And so the Romans took this guy named Caiaphas, who was his son-in-law, and said, you're the new high priest. So officially, Caiaphas was the high priest. But in everybody's eyes in Israel, the high priest was like a Supreme Court justice. You go until you're dead or you quit or whatever, but I don't think people quit. And so we had these kind of two high priests 
who were competing for power, but they were of the same family. So basically there was one family uh, that ruled everything. Um, and then there's uh, other folks. John, who was one of the sons of Annas. He was the next high priest after Caiaphas. Uh, and then a bunch of guys we don't know anything about and the family and stuff. The point is, he's listing out, this is an intimidating group with a lot of power. There are three people who would either are the high priest now or would become the high priest eventually. And there's three high priests in this room. These guys were not small potatoes. Then verse 7. And when they set them in their midst. So the way that this worked was the uh, Sanhedrin had 71 people in it. It was uh, 70 elders and then the high priest was the 71st guy. And they would, they had this weird room, like a big hall that they would meet in. And they would sit up high and like a half circle with the high priest right there in the middle. And they had this pit almost that was down below. So if you're on trial in front of the Sanhedrin, you had to stand in a pit in kind of darker because all the lights and the torches and stuff would have been up high. And you had to look up at all these intimidating people. And you had to stand there as Peter and John, knowing these were the guys. This isn't where Jesus's trial happened because Jesus has happened at the high priest's house because it was an illegal trial in the middle of the night. Um, but these are the same guys that just crucified Jesus, you know, who was God, by the way, a few months ago. So you got to, Luke wants us to imagine. The reason he's giving us all these details, he wants us to think these guys are scared. And then he says, so they put him in the midst. The whole point is intimidation. And then they asked him, they inquired, by what power or what name did you do this? So they're asking, and it sounds bad, right? How dare you heal in the temple? By what name? But the truth is, this was their job, right? God in the Old Testament says, hey, you leaders, you need to keep the wolves out. And so the elders of the people, your job is to make sure no false teaching pops up. The problem is these guys were terrible at their job. And when God himself showed up, they killed him. And this is also a trick question because Deuteronomy 13 says, if anybody does a miracle in any name besides the name of Yahweh God, you got to stone him. They know who these guys, what they're about to say. And so they're tricking them. What's the name? Because, and they have this verse in their back pocket. And then Peter, here's the thing completely intimidated. He cowers and he runs away, right? No. Look at verse 8. Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Problem is, we already saw Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Greek has like these different ways they do verbs and stuff. We, not exactly the way we do it. Um, and one of the ways they do verbs is they can say something is like constantly happening. It's over and over and over again. And that's the verb tense here. Peter kept on getting filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what it says in Greek. So yeah, he got filled with the Holy Spirit over and over and over again. And this is one of those times. He gets filled with the Holy Spirit. And he says to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? So Peter stops them and he goes, he doesn't answer the question yet. First, he makes them think about how dumb their question is. Does that sound like a guy who's intimidated by the situation? Does that sound like a guy who's afraid to get crucified? Everything that I feel I would be doing in this situation, Peter is doing the exact opposite. Every human instinct is, doesn't seem to show up with Peter. 
because why? He's filled with the Holy Spirit. And he has this holy boldness. And he stands before these guys and he said, paraphrasing, did you just really ask me the dumbest question of all time? Like, did you really just have the gall to ask me, how dare you heal this guy? Like, you know, and so he keeps going. Verse 10, fine, you want to know the answer? I'll give you the answer. And I imagine that kind of took the Sanhedrin off guard a little bit, all 70 of these guys. So he says, let it be known to you, to all of you and to the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ, I bet he tapped the microphone because he knew that Deuteronomy verse, by the name of Jesus Christ, of Na- like that, I bet that's what he did, of Nazareth, whom you crucified, by the way, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. So he says, I want you to know, and I want all of Israel to know, and that Jesus is the way that this man is standing, and I think the guy was with them, the way it's phrased. This man, like I bet Peter pointed, do you see him standing? You all go to the temple every day, a couple times a day. You remember this guy, right? It's Jesus that did this. Now, in this next couple of verses here, these verses and the next one, Peter goes on to tell the Sanhedrin nine things about who Jesus is. Look at the nine things. One, he's the one from Nazareth. So Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus was a very common name. It was like John, right? You have a church with 18 Johns in it. That's how church works, right? Jesus was the same way. Everybody was named Jesus. So he says, not just any Jesus. It was the one from Nazareth. Two, Peter says he's the Christ, which, by the way, you Sanhedrin guys should know about. He's the Messiah. You were supposed to recognize him when he showed up, but you didn't. Instead, the third thing he says is you crucified him. So Jesus was killed. Peter's crazy, yelling this at these guys with all this power. But he keeps going. Four, he says, but even though you idiots killed him, God raised him from the dead. God vindicated him. It's an astounding claim. The fifth thing he says is, Jesus is the one who healed this guy, not us. It was in his name that this guy standing here is healed. And then he keeps going. Verse 11, he keeps on with the stuff about Jesus. This, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. So two more things about Jesus. First, you guys rejected him. You were supposed to know him when he came up, when he showed up, but you didn't. And then the seventh thing is he's the cornerstone, which was a verse from the Psalms basically saying everything is supposed to be built on Jesus. It's a, it's a, um, it's a like sermon illustration, right? Everything is supposed to be built on Jesus, but it's not because you rejected him because you guys suck at your jobs, right? Imagine somebody standing before the Supreme Court. And one of those justices, who's the one that never asks a question? Is it Clarence Thomas? He's like asked two questions in 40 years or something. Imagine he finally asks a question. Well, what do you think about blah, blah, blah? That's my impression of him. And then the lawyer goes, well, I would like to tell you, but you guys aren't really smart enough to understand. Imagine if somebody said that to the Supreme Court. That's kind of what Peter is doing here. This guy got healed by Jesus, and if you guys weren't so dumb, you would understand what's going on. But you, you are. He's supposed to be the one we build our whole world on. Instead, you killed him. You guys are terrible. And then he keeps going. So that's seven, but he keeps going. Two more. And this is our key verse for the whole day. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So eighth thing is that Jesus is the one who saves people. That's what the Messiah does. He's not a political leader. Right? And he's a savior. And then the ninth thing is not only is he a savior, he's the only savior. The only way to salvation. And this is the key. We're going to get back to this at the end. Peter goes to some guys from first century Judaism 
And he says, your religion is done. The way that you think people are supposed to get saved doesn't work like that. The only way that you're going to get saved is through Jesus. That's a pretty bold claim to make in the first century. It's just as bold in the first century, is what I'm saying, as it would be for somebody to stand up there today on a panel. Like, I've seen panels like this. Tim Keller was on a bunch of them. Panels with, like, uh, you know, uh, like a Buddhist monk and an imam and a rabbi and a pastor. And for a pastor to go, all of you guys are wrong and your, your religions don't lead to salvation. Can you imagine somebody? I mean, actually, I can because I've seen people do it. <laughs> but, I mean, it, it really takes the crowd back. And that's probably exactly what happened here. All right, he keeps going. Now let's find out what happened, and then we'll talk about that claim. We'll kind of fly through this next part here. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated common men. They were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So they see the boldness. It's something that pops up. It's visible, right? It, they couldn't believe the way that these guys were talking to them. And part of it was that they're just a bunch of regular dudes. These are fishermen. These are blue-collar, nobody-didn't-finish-high-school kind of people, right? There's no formal rabbinical training, none of that stuff. And so they're blown away by it. And then at one point, I think somebody recognizes, somebody in the crowd, oh, these guys, those were some of the guys that were following Jesus around. Now, remember, these Sadducees and these scribes and these leaders, these were probably the people who had that whole theological rap battle. Do you remember we talked about that at the end of Luke, where Jesus shows up at Holy Week and the crowd gets to decide who's right, just like a rap battle. These were the guys that spent all that time losing in those arguments to Jesus. Oh, if you believe in the resurrection, this guy died and then his wife married this other guy and then the brother and, you know, and then whose wife is she? Ha, ha, ha. And then Jesus, you know, you don't know the power of God or your Bibles or should we pay taxes to Caesar? All that stuff. They remember all those conversations. And they recognize something in the way that Peter is yelling at them. <laughs> and they go, that's how Jesus used to yell at me, right? And they realize these guys, they've been with Jesus. And so you can imagine this was infuriating. It was an infuriating thing to realize. These dudes hated Jesus so much that they murdered him, okay? Think about how much you have to not like somebody to kill him. It's not just, oh... Travis Kelsey's annoying and he's on the other team, you know, kind of a thing. I mean, there's like a, a, a gut level, like a hatred in somebody's stomach or in their soul if you're going to have somebody murdered when you know they didn't do anything wrong just because you don't like them and because you feel they're a threat. And now you realize these guys, they're just like Jesus. And so they get super um, upset. Verse 14. Here's the problem, though. But seeing the man who was healed, standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For a notable sign has been performed through them, is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, uh, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more in this name." So they want to kill these guys, or at least punish them somehow, beat them up or something, but they can't. Why? Because everybody knows this guy, and he's standing. What do you say to that? Like, you did too much good stuff, and now we're mad at you. That's what Peter asked him. Are you really asking me this dumb question about how I did this really good thing? 
It's like getting mad at somebody for making a large donation to a homeless shelter or something. It's like, come on, dude. How you, you know, they have nothing to say. But also, think about how um, broken their hearts are to see the work of God and go, I hate that. They did it with Jesus, and now they're doing it with Peter and John. Jesus actually talks about this. He calls it the unforgivable sin, right? It's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And the context of that passage, real quick, it's not like I can accidentally blaspheme the Holy Spirit and say the wrong words, and now I can't go to heaven. That's not what it is. You can find the passage in Luke. We talked about this. But basically, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is you're so deep in your rebellion against God that you look at the good things he does, and you go, that's the devil. I hate those things, and I hate God. You know, that's what these guys are. They are walking that line, right? They are right up there. So, verse 18. Uh, yeah, verse 18. So, they called them, they called them back in, right? And they charged them, so they yelled at them, to not speak or teach in the name of Jesus. So they brought him back in, and they lectured him, and they yelled at him. But Peter and John, so this is kind of a team effort, they answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must be the judge. For we cannot speak of what we have seen and heard. So Peter's answer is, yeah, here's the thing, guys. I got these 71 idiots telling me not to preach the gospel. And then I had this guy who died and rose from the dead and told me that he's God. And he's telling me to preach the gospel. So who should I listen to? Who would you listen to? That's Peter's response, which is basically a very eloquent way to say, thanks, but no thanks. I'll do whatever I want, and you're going to have to do whatever you want to me. Verse 21, and when they had further threatened them, so they didn't back down. These guys keep going. They further threatened them, and they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for they were all praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So look at this. They keep on threatening them, but Peter knows they're empty threats, because just outside the doors in the temple, wherever they are, is a huge crowd of people who are praising God and who are worshiping God because he healed this guy that had been sitting there for probably, I mean, you know, the guy's 40, let's say he start, you know, he's been sitting there 25 years or something, sitting outside the temple begging. Everybody knew who this guy was. And so Peter knows they're not, you know, I think he started to realize they're not going to punish me. And so um, eventually they let him go. Um, now, that's our passage. The last time I preached on this passage, let me tell you what I did. Uh, when I was at my old church, I used Peter as the center point, and I did a thing. Here's Peter before Pentecost, and I read the passage about him and the, the denying Jesus three times on the night of Jesus' death, right? The night, or the night before Jesus' death. And I said, this is who Peter really is. This is Peter's human nature. And then I showed this passage, and I said, this is Peter after Jesus gets a hold of him. And it's kind of a cool contrast. And I encouraged the church. I said something like, surrender to Christ and be filled with the Spirit. Pray for boldness like Peter. Let's be a church filled with Peters. And we're actually going to talk about that a little bit next week, what it means to be like Peter and how that happens and stuff. Um, but this time I want to do something different. There's something, what I said earlier, there's this massive thing in this passage that just sticks out. And it's Peter's claims of exclusivity. So next week, we're going to talk about Peter's boldness because the church is going to get together and they're going to pray. And they're not going to pray for what we would pray for. They're going to say, let us keep being bold, even while they're killing us and doing all this stuff to us. So we'll talk about boldness next week. This week, I want to address that 
sentence in the middle. There's salvation in no one else, for there is no, no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In the past, people rejected Christianity because they said things like, I don't believe that it could be true. And pastors and theologians and apologists spent time trying to lay out a serious case for the believability of the Christian faith. But now, if you asked people around the country and around, let's just say our city, let's forget the, you know, in San Francisco, what don't you buy about Christianity? You'd get a few answers. Christians are hateful and hypocritical. Christian morality, especially under areas of gender and sexuality and stuff like that, and justice is nuts or whatever. Um, but I think the biggest, this would be the biggest objection, the most common one. How could you really say that your faith is right? Don't you understand how arrogant that is? Or to put it another way, people have, right, people have problems with the exclusivity of the gospel. The gospel claims to be the only way for salvation. Um, there's a couple of authors that I read a bunch of stuff by them this week. One was Rebecca McLaughlin, the other was Tim Keller. Um, Keller says this in talking about this stuff. Um, I'm printing kind of small, but anyway, here we go. Um, people say, look, you can't do that anymore. You can't say that uh, you can't say that anymore, Christians. You can believe in Jesus. Great. Just don't say he's the only or the best or the superior way to find God. Don't say he's better than other great teachers and leaders like Plato or Moses or Muhammad or Buddha or Gandhi. You can believe in Jesus. Just don't believe he's better or superior to any of these other great religious founders or teachers. That's true. That's what people think is this really rubs people in our culture the wrong way. And, you know, we talk about Pabst a lot. And if you get to a point with one of your Pabst people, and they're from San Francisco, where you start asking them questions about faith, and you start sharing your story of faith, and you start talking to them about the gospel, I bet seven out of ten times this objection is going to come up in one way or another. And so what I did when I was prepping this all, I took out a notepad, and by notepad I mean on my iPad, and I wrote down six different flavors that this objection takes. And I want to walk through these six flavors real quick and share kind of what we think about this. Um, but we want to take these objections seriously because these are real things people are going to say. We, won't, we don't want to just say, well, you're stupid. I can't, you know, the Bible says. That's not, that's not the way forward. So let's really try to tackle these six flavors. Here's the first flavor. All religions basically teach the same thing. So has anybody ever heard that? My, uh, something along those lines. They're all basically the same. Now, let's talk about this. The first problem with this idea, when people say this, is it really belittles all religions. The whole feeling behind this objection um, and the objection to religious exclusivity is an attempt to be more accepting. We want everybody to fit in. We want to be more accepting. But to make this claim isn't accepting, it's actually insulting. It's saying, this thing that you believe with your whole being and that people have believed for thousands of years and all kinds of people that aren't like me believe, um, they, it's not really what they think it is and it's not really that important. It's, it's belittling. You don't even understand your own belief system is kind of the, the actual thought process behind this. And Keller gets into this a little bit and I read a little bit more about this uh, scouring the internet. But this is also a very white and Western way of thinking. So the whole idea behind 
like the Brits and everybody and political colonialization was this. Uh, we're going to go over to your place and we know better than you. So we're going to run things. We're going to tell you what to do. And we're more powerful, we're smarter, and you guys should all be like me. And there's a massive level of arrogance among, and again, mostly white and mostly Western philosophers and thinkers, to look at religions. Let's say Christianity, which is mostly Chinese people, Indian, Hispanic, and African, numerically. That's like 9 out of 10 Christians in the world are one of those ethnic groups. And then let's say take another religion like Islam, which is mostly Middle Eastern, North African, and Southeast Asian. There's a big group of uh, Islamic folks in Southeast Asia. And for these white and Western philosophers and thinkers to look at those two religions and go, what you guys actually believe is actually kind of the same thing. It's a, it's a pretty big, arrogant, it's a big claim. I mean, uh, Tim Keller, he says this about it. I want to read this to you. Um, Let's see. He says the fact value distinction, which is kind of what he's talking about here, is that science gives us facts and those things we can talk about in public. But values and religions and morals are private because nobody can decide what's right. It's all subjective. Where did that come from? And in this section, he's also talking about the idea that all of these, there's facts and there's religion. And all the religions are just sort of subjective, kind of the same thing. Uh, where did that come from? It came from the Enlightenment. It came from the European Enlightenment in the 18th century. It came from guys like Immanuel Kant and people like that. Most of the world doesn't believe that. Most of the world does not believe that facts are objective and values are subjective. White people believe it, by and large. It came from white people. It came from the European Enlightenment. Now, when I hear New York people, because he's in New York, but we could say San Franciscans, when I hear San Franciscans say, hey, the world is getting more secular and more pluralistic. Christians, you guys need to get with the program. Keller says only white people are getting more secular, and they're shrinking in number, in percentage, right? And he says they're shrinking. And so this objection that says all religions are basically the same kind of a thing, it's actually, of all of the ones in our list of these six flavors, this one's the most arrogant. Because this looks at people and says, you guys say opposite and contradictory things, but you're actually saying the same thing, you're just too dumb to realize it. But me... The white Western philosopher, I'm the one who really understands it. So also, and here I put in just right in the end, I mean, aside from that it's a white and a Western thing and it's actually kind of arrogant, it also just doesn't make sense. It's illogical. Something can't be true and not true at the same time. Is that like the first rule? I forget what it is. The law, is that non-contradiction? The first, Like the rules of logic. Who remembers that from college? I should have looked it up. But I think that's a law of non-contradiction. You can't be... Something can't be true and not true at the same time. I can't go to you and say we're both taller than each other. It's not possible. We both can't be taller than each other. One of us is taller than the other one. I can't say I'm a father and I'm not a father. Right? It's either I am a father or I'm not. The world's religions make contradictory claims about each other. Keller actually talked about this in one of his books. I remember seeing it somewhere where he said he was on one of those panels with a Muslim guy and a rabbi and, a, and him. And the moderator said something like this, and all three of them went, whoa, one of us has to be right. Or we don't have to be right, but all three of us can't be right because we're saying competing things. Just take Christianity and Islam, for example. Christianity says that faith and salvation comes through believing in Jesus' death on the cross, and it's a free gift. Islam says you follow our God, and you do our thing, and you follow our book, and 
They have the whole idea of the scales. I mean, we're not getting into it, but like the, the two ways of salvation in Islam and Christianity are not compatible. And for somebody to just say, oh, they're the same thing, it, it's like saying I'm t- we're both taller than each other. So this is our first flavor, right? Um, it's arrogant and belittling. It's white and it's Western, and it's an illogical claim. All right, the second flavor. Look at the second flavor. Here we go. Each religion has part of the truth, but nobody can see it all. So this is similar to the first one, but it's a little bit different. So there's a great part in Rebecca McLaughlin's book, but I actually think Keller talks about this a bunch too. He was the first person I heard talk about this, but Rebecca McLaughlin wrote a book. I think we have her book on the back table, don't we? 12 Hard Questions for the World's Biggest Religion or something like that. Anyway, um, she's this British writer. She's super brilliant. And she talks about, have you heard of the elephant parable? Okay, so here's the parable. It's imagine a bunch of folks who are blind or blindfolded or something. They're in a room. And in the middle of the room is an elephant. And they all put their hands on the elephant. And they're trying to describe to each other what the elephant is. And one guy goes, grabs the trunk. Oh, I think it's kind of like a snake. Right? This thing is huge. And then another guy grabs the elephant's, like, uh, big giant legs, you know? And he goes, no, no, no. This is not a, a snake. This is a tree. Right? And then... Uh, you know, another guy hits the belly and goes, this is our pastor. And then another guy, no, I'm just kidding. And then another guy grabs the tail and he goes, this is a worm, a furry worm. And the, the, the parable goes like this. This is what religious people are all doing. They're all just touching part of the elephant and they think that they see the whole thing. Now, do you see the massive flaw in logic with the parable? The only way to tell the parable is to assume that you're the one that can see You're not touching the elephant, and you're standing there watching everybody. So basically, this parable goes like this. Everybody else in the world is dumb, but I'm the one with the correct way to view everything. This does what it claims to be defeating, which is I have the exclusive way to look at the world. We don't like the exclusive way to look at the world, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you my exclusive way. It doesn't make any sense. It's a self-defeating claim. All right, that's our second one. Here's the third one. Did I not put it in? Oh, yeah, here we go. Three. Um, Religions are too culturally and historically conditioned to be true. So there's too much history and too much, like, society in religions that we can't really trust what they think. Now, this whole section, there's a paragraph in Tim Keller's book. Not a paragraph, a whole couple pages. In Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God, that I lifted all of this from, and then I did a little bit of reading. But, I mean, you can get the gist of it from there. And this is what basically what Keller says. He says there's a sociologist named Peter Berger, and this guy wrote a book called The Rumor of Angels. I've never read this book, but I read a bunch of stuff about it this week. It was kind of interesting. Um, anyway, this book is called, uh, what did I say, The Rumor of Angels, where he talks about like how we know stuff. Um, what's that called? Epistemology. How, the, the way that we have knowledge. And in it, he discusses this idea that's become very popular in the last 50 years, that all knowledge, everything that we know, comes is tainted because it comes from uh, society and history. And you can never really have a firm <laughs> belief in anything because everything we know is tainted. Like, so we should be skeptical of truth. And this is the quote from Peter Berger's book. If you infer from the social conditionedness, Microsoft Word did not like me for copying and pasting this quote, anyway, uh, of all belief that no belief can be held as universally true for everyone. So if you say that everything people believe is all tainted by history and society, and you can't be sure of anything, that itself 
is a comprehensive claim about everyone that is the product of social conditions, so it can't be true on its own terms. Relativity relativizes itself, so we can't have relativism all the way down. So again, just like the last one, he says this is a self-defeating claim. You can't say everything that people say in every area of truth, we can't trust it because it's all tainted by society and history. The easy answer to that is, well, what about that claim? <clears throat> so I can't, it's, a, it's again, it's a self-defeating claim. All right, here's our fourth flavor. We're flying through these. Can you grab me a water? I didn't grab a water. Thanks. All right, here's the fourth one. This one's a little pretty quick. God is too big for us to make claims about who he is. So when people say you can't claim to have the only way to God because who really knows what God is like? Here's the problem with this statement. It's kind of true. There's, there's a kernel of truth in it, and that's why this one is like a pretty appealing way to go about this. Um, but at the same time, it's also a little bit dishonest. There's some truth in it, and there's some dishonesty. Let me tell you what I mean. Underneath this statement is sort of a cop-out. It's, I don't like the way that you say that Jesus is the only way. And so what I'm going to say is God's just too big. We, he might be, but we would never be able to know it. The thing is, if you really believed that God is, too, is big, it's true that on our own, we can't know anything about God. That's the true part. He is too big for us to figure out. Romans 1 talks about this. We can know from... Um, what's called general revelation from creation and that stuff. We can look at the world and go, there's a God. We can't know anything about that God, except that he created, right? We can't know his heart, his law. We can't know who he is. But if you really believed that there was a God that big, then you would believe that a God that big could also tell us about himself. We can't figure him out, but if he really is that big, if he wanted to, he could reveal himself to us. And that's exactly what Christianity, and also a lot of the other world religions say, Judaism and Islam, we all say that God has revealed himself to us. And so, again, this, is a, this claim uh, has an easy answer, which is just, yeah, he is that big, but he's revealed himself to us. And otherwise, if you, did, if you don't believe that God could reveal himself to us, you're saying that there isn't actually a big God, and then your thing doesn't make any sense either. All right, five. These last couple go a little bit faster than those first two, if you're looking at your watch. Um, making ex uh, exclusive claims is arrogant. Nobody should make exclusive claims. right? So when you say that Jesus is the only way to salvation, that's a really arrogant thing to say. Because you're saying, you're making this grand exclusive claim, and nobody should ever do that. What's the, anybody see the massive gap in that one? You could, the hole in the, what's that? Yeah, that's an exclusive claim. It's a self-defeating claim. You can't say um, nothing anybody ever says is actually true, and I know that for a fact. Like, uh, sorry, dude. And then here's the last one. Uh, trying to convert people and expecting them to think like you is arrogant or wrong or immoral, or you could put whatever word in there at the end. Okay, here again is the problem with this viewpoint. Do you see the Grand canyon size hole in this one as well? Nobody who really believes this statement would ever say it out loud. Maybe there's somebody that believes this, but they would keep it to themselves. Because by not keeping it to yourself, you're proving that you don't really believe this argument. Because what you're saying, you're again, it's a self-defeating thing. When you say, um, I have this 
when you say this, you're saying, I have a particular view about God and about religion, that religions shouldn't try to convince people to think like them, and you need to think like I do. Just by saying it out loud, you're trying to convince somebody. You're doing what you're telling people not to do. This is like the logic version of when all the celebrities take their private jets to the climate conference. Everybody looks at that and goes, wait, you, <laughs> you don't really believe what you're, you know, it's the same kind of thing, right? It's like when you say this out loud, it's a self-defeating statement. So those are our six flavors. Let me end with this. This idea. I think there's some massive holes in a lot of these different flavors. Like it really, this argument, when you dig deep, deep down, what's at the root of it, you find problems. Um, but on the surface, I understand the motivations. Um, and I, I think there's two main motivations. One is good, one's bad. The first motivation is rebellion and sin. Our sin nature is strong. And the easiest way to rebel against the truth of God and the truth of the gospel is to push him away and dismiss him. And so these objections, they offer us people a surface level way to do that. It's, it's an easy cop out where you don't have, you know, people aren't that believe this stuff. They're not consistent in what they believe, but it's still, it's just an easy kind of thing to believe and not put too much thought into because the sin in their hearts is telling them to rebel against the God who loves them. That's the first motivation. The second motivation, though, I don't think is bad. It's actually a good motivation, which is a desire for unity, right? The first motivation comes from a sinful heart. The second motivation doesn't. Take a minute and think about world history. Over the years, people have used religion in all sorts of ways to divide humanity. I mean, let's be honest. We've used everything to start a war. Um, you know, what's his face? Uh, Helena Troy. That guy stole his wife, and then they started a war over that. People start wars over religion. How many wars got started in the 20th century over political systems, communism, and capitalism? Right? We, we'll start a war over anything. That's humanity. Religion has been one of those things, though. And so the motivation is, I want people to come together is a good one. And the easiest way to do that, though, is to belittle religions and say, well, they don't really matter the way that religious people think that they matter. But what I've argued here today is that that's an inconsistent path towards that goal of unity. And the way forward, what Christianity offers is the end goal of that good motivation. Let me tell you what I mean by that. You see, uh, Christianity is the most exclusive religion in one sense about who the Savior is, but it's also the most inclusive religion when you talk about who is saved. That's what Peter was challenging the Sanhedrin with. He was saying, you guys are exclusive because these guys, I mean, they had certain rooms. This was a very segregated temple, the first century temple. Right? This was the ancient world's version of white-only water fountains. I mean, only men could go here, and only Jewish people could go there, and women, and everything was very cut up, and they loved it this way. And so um, most religions, too, are also very exclusive in who can come. Only the good can make it in, only the enlightened, only the whatever. But the exclusivity of Christianity is different, because Christianity says only Jesus can save. That's the exclusive part. But anybody can get saved. That's the inclusive part. And so Christianity is actually the most inclusive religion in the world. Any idiot can come to Jesus and say, I need salvation and I need you to do it for me. And if you don't, I have no hope. Anybody can receive it. Think about famous believers. Abraham was a pagan before he came to faith. Moses 
this guy stinks. You ever read the um, burning bush story? How much Moses is trying to get out of it? Oh, dude, but I, you know, and God finally burns with anger and then Moses decides to do it. So Moses was this murdering loser that God goes, I'm going to save that guy. David was a murderer and a liar who used his power to force a woman into bed. Peter denied Jesus. Paul killed Christians. William Wilberforce, who wrote Amazing Grace, he was a slave trader, uh, African slave trader. Charles Coulson, you guys know Chuck Coulson? He, was, uh, he wrote a bunch of books. He became a believer. He was like the mastermind behind all of Nixon's evil stuff that he did. And then he became a believer later on. He's a political crook. Uh, Augustine was a promiscuous philosopher. Martin Luther was a 16th century works-based salvation kind of Pharisee. Like he was like the ultimate Pharisee. These are very different people. But it's not just a diversity of like what sin you had before you came to Jesus. There's a diversity in our faith of different kinds of people, race, social status, intelligence. Think of some of these folks. Harriet Tubman was a slave and a political hero. Um, Corey Tenboom was a Dutch watchmaker. John Calvin was a French student training for a career in law. Desmond Tutu was a South African bishop. The most diverse and inclusive religion because it has a gospel that says it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter how much money or education you have. We saw that in this passage. They were astonished. These country bumpkins, how dare they think that they're religious elites? Right? But that's what Christianity does, and that's why it's the most diverse religion in world history, because it, we have a God who says, I'll let anybody come to me, and if they put their faith in me and they repent of sin, I'm going to give them peace, I'm going to give them joy and happiness, I'm going to give them salvation, and I'm going to give them what their soul has always wanted to be happy. And so if we can start articulating that as an answer and keep that in the front of our minds as an answer to this problem of exclusivity, I think we'll do a lot better when we have these conversations with our papst people. So we don't want to take the you're stupid route. We don't want to take the Bible says this route. What we just did there is we want to have real conversations about what people believe and show inconsistencies, but show that the gospel has what they're really looking for. And we know that because we've experienced that ourselves. Amen?